Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I'm your host for Bookin', presented by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Mary M. Lane, the former chief European art reporter at the Wall Street Journal. She is the author of the new book, Hitler's Last Hostages, Looted Art and the Soul of the Third Reich, published by our friends at Hachette Book Group. Mary, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And Mary, before we talk about your book, I'm hoping that you can tell us what it was like being the chief European art reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Well, I received the position when I was about 25, and I'm now about to turn 31, so it was a whirlwind uh, time, uh, especially over in Europe. So I was responsible for all of our coverage of art fairs, galleries, auction houses, museums, uh, exhibitions of artists, both living and dead, and uh, it was quite overwhelming when this uh, situation uh, with the art dealer Cornelius Gurlitt popped into my lap. That sounds fantastic. And when you were over there covering all of these art fairs and events and auctions and such, what is the, your favorite piece of art that you discovered? While I was, well, it, it's interesting because when it's interesting because when I started writing the book, I really fell in love with the work of George Gross. But before then, I really didn't know much about him. But I was very much drawn to um, Egon Schiele, whose works are in Austria and even though he didn't actually treat women very well, uh, his works of multifaceted female sexuality are something that I found really compelling. And, you know, the fact that it is in Vienna, so much of the collection is in Vienna um, of Egon Schiele, and it's just such a beautiful city. I would say that was the artist that I really was not necessarily reported on uh, the most, but really found incredibly fascinating. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Mary, to set up this book for our listeners, uh, can you please tell us what are Hitler's last hostages? Hitler's last hostages is a term used to refer to tangible items, so in this case mostly artwork, that are still held uh, hostage away from their owners or their owner's descendants in um, either private collections or museum collections uh, throughout Europe that were stolen from their rightful owners uh, during um, the Third Reich. Yeah, and to expand upon this question a little bit, the German government, upon the quote-unquote discovery of these paintings, initially took an interesting stance on taxes and ownership. Uh, what was different about the German government's treatment of this artistic discovery? So um, this artistic discovery, which I labeled the Gurlitt Art Trove, was a collection of roughly 1,200 artworks uh, that were either sculptures or paintings or works on paper that were found uh, in February 2012 by the German government in the apartment of a man named Cornelius Gerlitt, who was a recluse in Munich. And Cornelius Gerlitt's father, uh, Hildebrand Gerlitt, had been one of the major art dealers for Adolf Hitler, uh, collecting works uh, that Hitler loved for his Fuhrer Museum that he planned to build when he won the war. 
So, of course, after the war, Hildebrand Gurlitt died, having kept these 1,200 works secret, and his son, Cornelius, inherited them and subsequently kept them secret all the way up until 2012. And these were works by masters, including Rodin, Manet, Monet, Matisse, Lieberman, just an incredible collection. And the German government confiscated them, knowing that Hildebrand had been a major art dealer for Hitler. The German government kept these works secret from the international restitution community in total violation of international norms they had signed in 1998, known as the Washington Principles. Uh, when I broke my first story about uh, the discovery of this and the cover-up by the German government in November 2013, so nearly two years after the German government had taken them, uh, it was really surprising because, as you noted, they essentially said that this wasn't an art historical investigation and that this was instead just a tax matter, just to make sure that Cornelius had been paying his taxes on these potentially, most probably, looted and confiscated artworks. So it was a shocking way to think about uh, works looted from, more often than not, Jewish Europeans. Thank you so much, Mary. And to build upon that answer just a little bit, um, Adolf Hitler aimed to open a museum and even wrote about his intention to do so in his last testament before his suicide. Uh, he collected art that he intended to display and also collected, as you said, what he claimed to be degenerate art. How did he differentiate between art and degenerate art? That's a great question. Um, listeners are undoubtedly aware that thousands of books have been written about Adolf Hitler and World War II in the past several decades. But uh, to be honest, culture and Hitler's obsession with culture is something that has been very undercovered. So Hitler always considered himself an artist first and a politician second. And he said this very clearly in documents that we have uh, from British diplomats who talked to him before the war and as you said, right up until the very last moment when he mentioned it in his last will and testament before committing suicide. And he saw politics as a way to further his view of culture, which was realistic art that reflected only, quote unquote, pure people. So who was, quote unquote, not pure would be any woman expressing sexuality, uh, gay people, lesbian people, disabled people, people with PTSD, uh, the infirm, uh, and anything that didn't portray his version of a, quote unquote, perfect reality. So he essentially created two different collecting projects. One was to collect art that was portraying those subject matters that was quote-unquote degenerate, as he put it. The other camp was to collect great German art, uh, which he defined as art that showed you know, women as mothers, soldiers without the absence of blood or fear, very sterile scenes of landscapes. And that was the art that he was planning to show after the war uh, in a museum that he would build in Austria. Thank you, Mary. And um, as you said, Hitler regarded himself as an artist first and a politician second. Uh, Hitler, as we learn, was shocked when he applied for and was rejected from an art school. Uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about this? And second, how would the world be different if this school had just let him in? Um, so it is true that Hitler was rejected from the Academia de Kunst in Vienna. 
uh, a lot of people make fun of him for being rejected, but in reality, it was an incredibly competitive school. The vast, vast, vast majority of people didn't get in who applied. It was about, if not lower, than getting into Harvard. So not getting in didn't make you a loser, nor did it make you a genocidal maniac. Um, And after that rejection, he didn't turn anti-Semitic right away. He um, he grew up in a family that was not of part Jewish heritage, as many people think, in a town, Lentz, that was not anti-Semitic. He, uh, after the rejection, um, someone tr- actually tried to help get him a very, very powerful mentor named Professor Rolle in Vienna, and he was too prideful and, and narcissistic to actually take the person up on the offer. So that really might have gotten him into art school after all, if he had just taken that meeting. But what he did was he sort of loafed around painting postcards and living in homeless shelters and hostels. And then when World War I broke out, he immediately decided to sign up, as many people did, because they thought it would be creatively inspiring, as, as odd as that sounds to us today. Um, and he really thought Germany was going to win. And when they didn't, he needed someone to blame. And so he settled on Jewish Europeans and cultural diversity. So he, I think, I it is always tempting to think, okay, what if he had just gotten into art school? But then after I realized that somebody had genuinely worked to get him a connection to get into art school, I sort of began thinking, okay, he probably wouldn't have become this genocidal maniac if World War One hadn't happened. But then it goes even further because it really is that he he wouldn't have become a genocidal maniac if nothing ever happened to his beloved fatherland that was bad where he needed to blame an outside source instead of accepting national responsibility. So that's what I think is really interesting here is that people didn't start becoming racist and intolerant until they had a crisis of conscience about their own nation. Thank you so much. Listeners, we are going to pause for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Mary M. Lane. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Mary M. Lane, author of Hitler's Last Hostages, Looted Art in the Soul of the Third Reich, published by our friends at Hachette. Mary, can you tell us about Hitler's parents and their influence on his ambitions? It appears to me as if his father is a pedophile and his mother is sort of smothering. Uh, is this a correct summation or am I oversimplifying? Um, I don't know if there's any evidence that his father was a pe- Well, okay, that's, that's interesting. I, I can see where you're going there. Uh, his father did uh, sort of 
live in close proximity to his mother and was significantly older. And when she was a little girl, she called him um, uncle and he did have a sexual attraction to a, an underage girl. So I could see where you're going there. Um, they ended up getting married. Um, Adolf was her was Clara, his mother's fourth child and the first not to die, um, which was not wildly uncommon back then, but still was fairly uncommon by that point. And so she doted on him, um, called him Adi, treated her other children well, but he was clearly, you know, her little pet. And uh, she was just a very passive, quiet, meek figure. His father, many sources have noted, uh, drank quite a bit and was quite violent. Um, and, you know, back then corporal punishment was extremely common, but even neighbors who used it noted that not only would uh, Hitler's father, Awa, use it to a harsher extent than other parents, but he also would do it arbitrarily, so even when, the, when Adolf hadn't done anything wrong. And he felt from fairly early on that his son, Adolf, was effeminate and was a sissy, and so he had him look at books of battle scenes to try to get him more traditionally masculine and that's when Adolf actually decided to become an artist and he wanted to paint famous war scenes. His father died when he was relatively young, um, sort of pre-teens, um, and then his mother, when he was later a teenager and had already started going to Vienna to fill his quote-unquote artistic ambitions, but before he applied to art school, his mother uh, actually died of breast cancer which is interesting because the doctor who uh, treated her for breast cancer, Dr. Edward Bloch, was Jewish. And Hitler really adored Dr. Bloch and even wrote him a postcard after his mother died of cancer. And later during the war actually helped Dr. Bloch uh, escape to America, which is quite a fascinating thing. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, moving on, what parallels did Hitler draw between religion and art? Hitler was very diabolically clever in recognizing that all people of all religions, nations, creeds, cultures need something greater than themselves to look up to, whether that is a literal God that they believe in or sort of a figurative God, lowercase, that they have in their minds. And he realized that for people of all religions, one thing that uh, they would look up to is, is culture, in a way, as a reflection of our humanity. And so he very cleverly, mainly with the help and inspiration of Joseph Goebbels, who was the PR mastermind behind Hitler, used religious language and used uh, religious imagery to have the state-dominated culture be the new, quote-unquote, religion of the of Germany and you know he very famously at the time said repeatedly we ourselves will become a church speaking not only of the Nazi party but of the Nazis culture wing uh, one of the first things he did when he entered into office in in 1933 was commission a house of german art be built in munich and purposely referred to it as a temple as a church and really in that way set up his culture as, as something that Germans could believe in instead of religion. Thank you. Um, 
And Mary, in this book, there's a brilliant introduction of the artist George Gross uh, on page 30. And can you recount this introduction for our listeners and tell us about Gross's importance to young Adolf Hitler's ambitions? Sure. Um, George Gross was this artist that I, as I said, I knew of him and had covered him briefly before this uh, book uh, project. But he really was such a fascinating character uh, in history. He, um, he, much like Hitler, he joined the war effort voluntarily for World, for World War I uh, as a way to gain artistic inspiration. He thought it would be this great adventure. And like Hitler, he was devastated when Germany lost. And unlike Hitler, he suffered a mental breakdown as, of his, as a result of his crisis of conscience uh, serving and seeing... Uh, quote-unquote war cripples, as they called them. And after the war, he took a completely different tack from Hitler. So instead of finding an outside source to blame and subsuming his own problems, he he said, hey, like, our, our culture is broken and we need to fix it from within. We need to take responsibility for this. And so while he was simultaneously dealing with what we would now call PTSD, he put his mental health at risk to create art that warned against nationalism, racism, and everything Hitler stood for. And so although the two never personally met, from the early 1920s, they were very well aware of each other, uh, as our documents show. And sort of had this entire cat and mouse game, if you will, that culminated with uh, uh, George Gross and his family needing to flee death threats from the Nazis just a few weeks before Hitler uh, came into power in 1933. Thank you so much, Mary. And um, a question about Hitler's art. Do Hitler's paintings and watercolors still exist? And if so, in what type of collections and is there a market for them? The, they still, a lot of them do still exist. There are a lot of fakes out there, um, as you can imagine, but many of them still exist and are either in uh, America, the U.S. Army has a collection of them, or they exist in, uh, there's a collection in, in Munich run by the government. Uh, and I've seen the one in Munich uh, and seen several of them as a researcher. They... They're very interesting because, again, here's chance number two that Hitler blew. After he was failed out of art school, he went and asked the professors, or failed out of the art school admissions test, rather. Uh, he went and asked the professors. He said, you know, what what did I, what made me not get the cut? And they said, well, your, your works, the bad news is you just couldn't do portraits. You seem to not be able to really connect with other humans in an empathetic way. But on the upside, uh, young Adolf, you are incredibly skilled in a way that would make you really great for architectural draftsmanship. So what we do on computers now, back then they needed to actually draw out and watercolor out the plans to show to customers of what a completed building is going to look like with its little shrubbery and all the perfect lines and everything. And that would have been a great career for him. But he had so neglected his uh, schooling and dropped out of school that he didn't have the grades and he didn't go back to, to do it, So to go to school. So, you know, what we do learn from that is that his pieces just barely ever show humans. And when they do, they are almost so far in the background that you can't see them. Um, and it's really odd because he, when he would draw even battlefields, they would be empty battlefields, which typically battlefields have soldiers on them. Um, engaging in battle. Uh, 
Uh, and so it it was so fascinating to me seeing that because the the drawings were very precise and as the Germans say, tuck tuck tuck, but just devoid of any emotion, really. Thank you. And uh, finally, paintings and watercolors aside, I want to speak about Nazi symbols and symbolism. Eighty odd years later, the sort of bold symbols, flags, colors, gestures have pervaded pop culture, and this will likely never change, um, and I hate to ask this type of question about such an unquestionably evil man, but was Adolf Hitler and, by way, um, Joseph Goebbels, were they artistic geniuses? Um, I mean, yeah, you can have evil geniuses. Mm-hmm. Um, the The mastermind behind the the visual aspects of the Nazi movement was Goebbels. So Goebbels was a PR guy before PR existed. Uh, he saw, you know, the red, black, white colors. I mean, even with with my book, I mean, it feels kind of weird saying this, but I helped design the cover, and I wanted it very much to be the same aesthetic as the Nazis, so very streamlined, very crisp. Uh, Adolf Hitler actually, uh, the first big break for Hugo Boss, the fashion designer, was designing all the uniforms for Hitler, and they looked very sleek and very streamlined and very fashionable. They didn't look like the you know boxy military look, and uh, that is that is you know the the aesthetic that we used for the book cover. Very clean, very streamlined, very crisp. Um, so it was really weird getting my book cover and seeing Hitler on the cover, and I'm like, that looks good. Um, but yeah, no, Joseph Goebbels recognized that. You know, just as for advertising, as much as we hate to say it, pretty things sell better than ugly things. And, you know, you see this in campaigns, uh, presidential campaigns of, you know, people who aren't Hitler. But, you know, where people say, gosh, I love this candidate, but that logo is just so bad. And that really is something that, you know, matters. Or or conversely, like with Hitler, you're like, oh, my God, he's evil. But, like, that Nazi uniform, like from a fashion perspective, very proportional. So, yeah, in that in that way, he he was an evil artistic genius. Thank you so much, Mary, for that answer, and thank you for writing this fascinating book. Literally. Listeners, I have been speaking with Mary M. Lane, author of Hitler's Last Hostages, Looted Art in the Soul of the Third Reich, published by our friends at Hachette. It really is a great investigation of the importance of of art in this era of world history. Mary, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Mary Lane for joining me. Signed copies of Hitler's Last Hostages can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo space to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support Quail Ridge Books in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.